Hey, bumper away. Hey, this is Michael O'Neill from the Solopreneur Hour podcast, and you are listening to Vroom Vroom Veer with Jeff Smith. Listen up. Woo! That was awesome. Thank you. Cool, man. Cool, man. Are you ready to thoughtfully steer away from your revved up, frenzied, and far too often scripted life? Then welcome to Vroom Vroom Veer with Jeff Smith, where he guides you down the road differently traveled by sharing unique experiences with guests who have managed to shift away from a life stuck on cruise control and veered their way into a more authentic and fulfilling one in all sorts of interesting and kind of remarkable ways. Get ready to Vroom Vroom Veer with your differently traveled road chauffeur, Jeff Smith. Hola, como esta? Konnichiwa. O genki desu ka? Hello. Welcome to the show. So, this is probably one of my favorite interviews. I think I did a little bit of uh, fanboyish, but I am a huge fan of Eric Zimmer's podcast, The One You Feed. Um, if you're here, you're probably familiar, but I'll give you a little lowdown. It's uh, based on a parable of uh, how... A grandfather is telling his son a, a story about how people have two wolves who live inside of them, a good wolf and a bad wolf. And, you know, he gets a little bit deeper into it. But the grandson asks the grandfather which one wins because they're always battling. And the grandfather says, the one you feed. And so Eric's show is all about how to feed your good wolf. So I love that. I love parables and I love metaphors. So I thought Eric would be a great um, guest for this show. And uh, this is this is a really raw sort of um, wide open kind of talk uh, where Eric shares a lot about his days in and out of recovery and uh, his uh, fight with uh, not only alcohol addiction but addiction in general. And um, and then how he started there, and how he hit rock bottom, and you'll you'll hear it. But I mean, it's it's interesting because I can totally relate. Um, he was also he also um, was depressed clinically, uh, so I did that too. So this was fun uh, in one of those sort of like not fun ways. <laughs> it's it. It's a, not as morose as you might think because, you know, we're both over it now and we're, we're on the other side of, uh, of the pain. So we're, we're, we are lighthearted about the whole conversation, but it does get a little deep. So, you know, uh, you are warned, but uh, at the end we're laughing and, uh, and it's all good. So uh, please prepare yourself, gird your loins. <laughs> it's not that bad. Um, but here's my chat with Eric Zimmer of the One You Feed podcast. It is recording. My level looks good. Maybe a smidge more volume on my level. Okay, good to go. All right, here we go. Hello, Eric Zimmer. Thank you for being here. Thank you for coming to Vroom Vroom Veer. Thanks, Youper. I am happy to be here. Oh, by the way, I didn't tell you, I'm going by Jeff on the new show. But that's okay. You can call me Youper if you like it. 
<laughs> we we can just we can do it again. Let's no, start just, over. No, that's fine. You just from now on. You, I didn't tell you. I didn't prep you. Oh. That's okay. It, it'll be a fun part of the show. It's cool. All right, Jeff. <laughs> I'm glad go. to be here. <laughs> Sorry, that's a nervous laugh. Anyway, yeah, I did a whole other show where, where somebody was calling me Youper, and I'm branding myself as Jeff now, so it's no big deal. Okay, so uh, you know a little bit, a tiny little bit about vrooming and veering, because I just told you, and I gave you the five-minute version, but uh, so vrooming is uh, when your life on autopilot, much like the movie Groundhog Day, where everything seems like it's the same day over and over again, and you're head down, and you're focused, and it's... For, uh, for the sake of keeping metaphors simple, it's the bad side. It would be your bad wolf, right? And veering is the when you have an opportunity to feed your good wolf. So tell me a little bit about uh, in your life, and maybe let's start talking about uh, your life as um, from the lens of rooming and veering. Start with the, sure. the room period. Yeah, well, I think there's... There's a lot of room periods, and um, I think as you were just talking about that, what what came to my mind was how there are some very significant, um, you know, long rooms, big veers, um, and I think you know those are probably the most interesting to talk about. But what I was what came to mind as you were just reading that is I thought, you know, what life works best for me when it's short rooms, short veers, like it's sort of a constant, like I'm pushing, I'm pushing, I'm working. Yes. Um, yes, and I'm then I make a, it's a, it's a small adjustment and then more and more in a small adjustment instead of these long periods right. of, of, um, consciousness basically. Right. That, like that result. Yeah. And in my case, they've often, those long periods of unconsciousness have, have resulted in, uh, you know, more than loss, you know, uh, loss is greater than just lost time. Sure. Um, and then the veers have to be pretty dramatic and it seems to, uh, work better when we can just keep those two things closer together. Oh yeah, definitely. I, I, that's one of the first things I learned. Um, I don't know if you're a fan of the Tim Ferriss podcast or not. I've listened to some of it. It's very good. Yeah, I love it. One of his early guests was Josh, Josh Waitskins, the, the searching for Bobby Fisher kid guy, guy now. <laughs> He's not a kid anymore. Uh-huh. But anyway, he told this story about, um, one of the martial artists that he hangs out with, his whole philosophy of his martial arts is living in transition, in the liminal space between the moves. <laughs> and right, I, right. If that makes any sense, um, you know, because most martial artists are working to uh, get really good at hold A and then get really good at move B to get to hold C, right? And he just lives in transition. He wants to stay always moving, you know, and and uh, it wigs people out. So that's why he's a champion. But anyway, yes, I get your point that, uh, that the value is increasing the frequency of your rooming and veering and making it daily, really, with practice. It's like if you can... If you can room and veer in a day, um, that that's sort of like my show's version of feeding the good wolf. I think. Right. Right. Yep, you're absolutely right. So tell us a little bit about one of your one of your room periods, and uh, just just paint a picture. You can summarize a little bit in the in the uh, in the room period, and then and then get down into story mode when you get to the veer, the big event that changed everything. Well, probably the largest one was um, 
my transition from addiction to uh, sobriety when I was 25 years old. So that was a pretty, you know, you talk about the vroom of mindlessness into a pretty dramatic veer. That was the big one. I was, um, I was 24 years old, you know, right before I got sober, I was, um, was homeless. I was living in the back of a van, um, with a couch. I had sleeping on a couch I had stolen from a, I guess it's not stealing from a dumpster. I had picked up from a dumpster. Um, you know, my life was a total disaster and I had been going that way for about seven years of pretty hard, um, drinking and, and, and drugging. I was, um, I was sick. I had hepatitis C, but I didn't know it. I was, um, I was dying in, I mean, pretty, pretty clearly I was, uh, I was facing about 35 years in jail. Um, so I had been on a pretty crash course in not being, um, doing everything I could to not be barely even conscious, let alone mindful. Right. So you were stuck in a numb kind of, uh, everything in your life was just sort of like too loud and you, you got hooked on numbing out, right? That's basically, is that the cycle? I don't know. I've never been there, but I think people tend to do go one of two ways. I think Mm they, um, either life is too loud and they numb it out. I almost think it was the opposite for me. It was, I was somehow too numb and the drugs and alcohol turned life on for a while. Now that stopped. There's a, there's a scene in an old movie, the days of wine and roses. And, and one of the characters says to the other one, it's one of the best descriptions I've heard. It said, you know, when I'm, when I'm sober, life is like black and white. But when I drink, it's like someone turned the color on. And that's, that's what my experience was. But then at a certain point, um, you know, you've just, I'd made such a mess of my life that the vicious cycle of addiction starts, which is now I don't feel good about my life. So I get high and, uh, then I feel worse about my life because I got high and did something stupid again. And, you know, it's just a, it's a quick, you know, it's a vicious um, cycle, right? Yeah. It's a vicious downward, downward spiral for sure. And so that's kind of where I was at the age of, um, at the age of, I guess it was 24, um, when, when kind of it all came crashing to a halt. I had been trying for a couple of years on and off relatively, or not relatively, unsuccessfully to get sober, to clean up. And it just, it was one of those that took me a while to kind of figure it out and, and to get to a point where I think I was really ready. But that was a pretty dramatic veer for me. I mean, A, had I not veered then, I don't think I would be alive today or I I would be, or I would be spending, I would have spent a good portion of the last, uh, 20 years in jail. Um, so that was the, that's the real big one for me. And it was a very dramatic one and one that I am, uh, eternally grateful for. So what was the moment? What was the turning point? What happened? Well, you know, I think that there were, I think there were a variety of things that led up to sort of a moment. But I was, um, as I said, I was living in the back of this van and the van I had from this restaurant that I worked at. And one day, um, the police walked in the restaurant and they came back and they arrested me. And that was the end of the job, the end of the van where I was living. And I didn't know, I just simply had no idea of what to do. I, um, I had a very expensive drug habit. I was going to be very sick in, you know, the next morning, you know, dope sick. And uh, so I went and I checked myself into a rehab. 
at that point with real no intention of anything except I just don't know what else to do. I'm, I'm, I don't know know, where else to go. Yeah. I need to, I need to get, you know, I need, I need some time to regroup. I hadn't foreseen this coming. And, and so I was in there and at one point they said, we think you should go upstairs to our 28 day program. And I said, I don't think so. Because clearly I had such important things I needed to go take care of on the outside. Um, <laughs> exactly. And so, um, but at one point in that, you know, in that multi-day detox that I was there, I had, I had a bit of, you know, in recovery, they call it a moment of clarity. And my moment of clarity was, I'm going to die if I go back out there. Um, I have no ability not to go just do all this again. And so I said, yeah, I'll go upstairs to the longer treatment program. And so that was probably you know, if you wanted to look at a particular turning moment, that moment to decide to go to that and, and put, put certainly more effort at that point into trying to get sober than I ever had before. Um, you know, that was a pretty big commitment to say, all right, I'm going into this thing for 28 days. Um, in retrospect, I'm through hell basically because the detox is excruciating from what I see. I don't know. I can't say that, but wow. Right. Yeah, I mean that's the part of the benefit of being in an institution like that is they will keep you relatively uh, drugged up with this or that thing to allow you to transition in a way that's not quite so painful. Oh, really? Um, okay, so they kind of step you down. Yep, yep. Well, okay. they don't. In my case, I mean, it was it was heroin. They don't give you heroin, but they give you a variety of because what happens is you when you come off that, it's just it's such a depressant when you come off it. Your system is used to sort of pushing trying to get back to normal so hard so it's really revved up and you take that away and it's just like heart rate spikes all that stuff and you just so what so, part of the brain does uh do you know is heroin affecting dopamine or is it like yeah more? okay it's a it's a lot of dopamine and um you know there are specific opioid receptors in the brain right that that it's affecting so yep yikes so, but I was kind of, I mean, that was the main thing for me at the end, but I had, you know, I was, I was every bit, for me, it's not so much about what the drug was, um, because there had been periods where it was just alcohol or, um, you know, periods where it was, you know, cough syrup. It, it wasn't, I mean, that stuff is, you know, it makes a little bit of difference in maybe how you withdraw and different things, but the problem wasn't there. The problem was in my in my head with my approach to life and any substance that would make me feel better would do. Right, right, right. So how would you characterize that? I mean, cause it, it doesn't sound like, so you weren't avoiding, you were chasing, you were chasing highs and not necessarily avoiding lows. I think it's a little of both. Okay. Um, I think, I think there's certainly some of, it's hard to, it's hard to, um, it's hard for me to know exactly because I do think there's definitely some degree of avoiding life and, um, and there's some degree of it, it made me feel less numb. I mean, I've battled depression um, pretty much my whole life and my main symptom of depression is not sadness. It's not crying. It's just total blank numbness. Right. And so I've always said two drinks is the best antidepressant that was ever developed. Um, works for me like a charm, except that it only, you know, I only stay at two drinks for about five minutes, and then, <laughs> right? And then I'm way, way past it. And right, so, right, right, right. Yeah. So, 
I think it's a, it's a combination of things. But the long and short of it is I don't like the way I feel in my mind, in my body. I want to feel different. And so whatever I'm feeling is not okay and I must make it different. But that's, that's still going on every day, right? I mean, that doesn't change. You still have to deal with this. You just have better ways to do it now, right? Yeah, well, we all do to some yeah, right, degree, right? right? Exactly, right. Yeah, but, but, but I think a lot of it is just the recognition that, okay, I don't, I don't, I'm in a bad mood or I feel sad or I feel numb or I feel blank or, um, and recognizing that, okay, That's okay. that is, That's okay. that is okay. It's, it's, right. you know, it's not going to kill me. It's going to, but when, when you're in a state of addiction, that is like a, it's a, it's more of a panic. Like I can't, you know, there's yes. just no ability to cope. Yeah. You know, actually, here we go. Because you know, you are familiar a little bit with uh, Pema Chodron. I love Pema Chodron. Yep. Me too. Um, and I didn't read the book that I know you read because you read When Things Fall Apart, right? Right. Um, yep. I read, actually, I have the audio book of Getting Unstuck. Uh, that's a good one, too. Oh, so you, okay, good. I'm glad you're familiar. But what you're talking about reminds me of what she calls Shinpa. Do you remember that one? I don't. Okay, so Shenpa is that little sort of like uh, Eckhart Tolle might call it the pain body. Mm -hmm. It's like that, the panic feeling. Mm -hmm. What I and and so it's sort of like it's this guy inside of you. <laughs> That's what it feels like to me. So yep. I I just got relatable because I got triggered and got all reactive on Monday this week. Um. And I, I really don't know why. I haven't figured out why, but I was able to talk myself down by like the afternoon, but the morning just went like really through the roof, crazy panicky. Um, mm -hmm. And this isn't this sort of like life-changing kind of like, it was just, it had been a very long time since I had gotten uh, in that panic kind of state. Um, mm -hmm. And... So yeah, I kind of, I kind of, I just wanted to relate that 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 still is around for me too. Um, yep. You know, and I think it's around for everybody. So, it, right? I think, I think, oh, I think it is around for everybody. Some people just have, you know, better structures, skills to handle right, it and, and structures. And, and I think, I think that's a lot of it. Is you know, it, I I don't think I knew until I got into recovery at at twenty five years old that. Like just that basic idea, like okay, you can feel bad and it's okay. You know, right, it's not right, the end right. of the world. Right. Um, you know, the the and it's phrase normal and it's and it's okay, right? Exactly. And the phrase that someone said recently, I was like, that is perfect. Is that emotions are not emergencies. When we have an emotion, we tend to feel like we have to do something with it. If we're angry, we have to go, you know, deal with it. We have to go solve it. Or if we're, you know, wow, if that's we're. Good, though. You know, it and being able to just go, okay, I feel this way and I can experience it and I just don't have to be so afraid. And if we're not so afraid of the emotion, if we don't have to make it go away so dramatically, we're much more capable of making good decisions, I think, in our lives about right, how we react right. to things that happen. But if we're in that, um, you know, it's an emergency or panic or um, just really focused on how I'm feeling, um, we tend to not, at least I and a lot of people I know, 
tend to sort of go into what I would call more of a regressed state. You know, when you get that way, you're very stressed. And, and the, the brain metaphor is you sort of moving out of that, that frontal cortex where our executive thinking and our ability to make good decisions right. is and we're, yeah, yeah. we're headed back towards the lizard brain and we make Being worse reactive. decisions. Right, right. Yes. It's yep. For whatever reason, and that's what she calls Shenpa, is yep. you've been put into that fight or flight mode. And once you're there, um, I, I think that the, a key here, though, and what really helped me on Monday was knowing that I was there. That's right. And yep. I was still being reactive and panicky. Um, and it lasted for a couple hours. But the, my executive was aware of what was going on. Mm -hmm. and, and that and makes it a little less scary, even if you can't quite make it. I was, I was having a hard time pulling out of it. Um, but I knew it was there and I wasn't going off the deep end. Um, and I was like, okay, I'm, I'm, I started thinking about like, whoop, you remember whoop? Um, the, yep. yeah, yeah. Um, and I was like, I need a plan. <laughs> I need a plan. And I didn't have one. <laughs> so I think, uh, then I remembered talking to you and I said, pattern interrupt. So I took a walk and that's what yeah. kind of got me out of it. Because I was just sitting in the house too much. And by the time I got back from that walk, I was ready to get back to work. And it was pretty damn amazing. But there was a couple of panicked hours there. So, yeah, I mean, these aren't, these aren't sorts of feelings and things that just happen to people that are on the, you know, scary, you know, rock bottom. I mean, these things still happen. Um, oh, yeah. We still need. That's the point of my show is really to come up with tools and structures and and this podcast is one of those tools and structures and social interactions that let you talk about it. And I agree. And this yeah. sort of thing that you're doing is so important in that regard to be able to for people to know, oh yep, I've I've felt that and it is it is normal. Um you know in, in when we when we talk about alcoholism and addiction and in recovery, it's you know the the chemicals are just a symptom they're not they're not the real problem i mean they they are a problem it needs to go before anything else can happen but they're a they're a symptom of of kind of what we're discussing right here which is an inability to cope right 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 so okay so now we know where you were and we know that the big veer moment was when you decided to say yes to that 28 day treatment so what happened next? Did that stick? It did. That did stick. It's, it's interesting. I, um, and, and just thinking about it, I was in that detox program and I was supposed to go to the 28 day treatment, but I said it was Christmas time. And I said, you got to let me go home for Christmas. Um, and of course, Christmas Eve, I got went and got high. Yeah, okay. Yep. Yep. Right. And I, I remember it. It was, it was a truly, you know, I got money from my grandma and I, I did not want to go. I did not want to do it. And yet I was just, it, it felt like I was just being dragged, uh, through it. So that was the last, yeah. So I went back into the 28 day treatment and it did stick. Um, and so the, the I think the dramatic veer was to, to decide to go in, but I think to make, I think we tend to think of life as these big epiphanies. We have this epiphany and then and then everything changes. Right. That's not that's, exactly how it works, though. N no, not for most people. There are, you know, there are some well, the thing, people who truly ahead. have a crazy epiphany. Um, 
but for most people, there's still an awful lot of work to make that decision into a reality that stays that way. I was going to say that the epiphany and or event or the, the one timer thing is an opportunity. And there's a couple of points here that that needs time to be incubated and processed in your whole brain, right? Um, so yep. sleep on it. You know, it might take a month for that to roll around in your subconscious and and make some neural pathways before you come up with a no kidding decision that can change your life. And then a decision is not as important as again um, a commitment. So yep. I'm I'm thinking that there had to be a commitment moment for you. I think the commitment moment was when I agreed to go to, you know, to go to that 28-day treatment. But in recovery, one of the, you know, the clichés that is used all the time, I actually just did a mini episode on it last weekend is one day at a time. And right. the reason is it's really difficult. Well, you can't make a commitment for next Thursday. And I mean, you can, you can say one, but you can't actually do you can't it. Do you can't it. fulfill right. the commitment till next Thursday. And so it's very easy to get overwhelmed, particularly with major changes like that. Like, um, the example I always use is, you know, I remember sponsoring a guy who was like, well, if I get sober, what about my wedding? Am I going to be able to drink at my wedding? And I was like, you don't even have a girlfriend. Like we're way <laughs> out ahead of ourselves here, right? Like, let's just worry about now. But that's that. That's exactly that mentality. And I think we yeah. can get into it with anything. If we say, "Oh, I'm going to, um, I'm going to start a podcast," right? You, it's easy to get overwhelmed with all the work that has all to be done. All the details, right? Right. Yes. But you only have to do the next one, and it's the same thing with you know, am I going to committing to a workout program? Am I really going to work out every day? Well, that's my, it's my intention, but all I can really do is work out today and maybe set the stage so it's easier to work out tomorrow. Right. Um, and so that's Baby that steps, one day at a time. Idea. So, yeah. so it is a commitment. I do have a commitment to not use or drink again right. because it hasn't worked out well for me. Um, but I made that commitment then and it stuck for about 10 years and then, uh, I did drink again and we can probably talk about that as another of uh, room, you know, veer moment. Situation. Right. But okay. so I think I had to make the commitment kind of every day. And a lot of times I think people have an idea that when you make a decision or you have an epiphany, it should just be easy moving forward. And I have to say there were a lot of days it was 51% to 49%. 51% right. wanted to stay sober, 49% right. wanted to go yes. get high, but it was just enough to get by. And I think it's that way, the same thing. If you if you want to go to the, you know, you want to make a change to your health and, and go to the gym or eat better yeah. or it's not like just because you. It's not just, easy. That's for sure. It's, yeah, it's not easy. And I think we have a tendency to go, well, if I still have to struggle, like I still want that piece of chocolate cake, I bet, you know, I'm just always going to be that way or I'm and it's it's some days it's just kind of pushing past one more day, one more minute, one more hour. Just yeah. keep going. This this is where the the present moment sort of mindfulness sort of saturation, I guess, sort of like got me around to some really fundamental decisions about how I was like living my life. I think I had this delusion that you can be you can like finish, you know. Right. You know what I'm talking about. Oh, I know exactly what you're talking about. Right. And at some point, 
I can just relax and I don't have to deal with X, right? And that is a fallacy. I don't know if that's a psychological fallacy that's got a name or I wish it did because um, I guess the lesson is, go ahead, yeah, comment. Well, I was going to say, I heard once there's a book out there called The Tools, which is written by a couple of psychiatrists. And it's pretty interesting. But the thing that was most interesting to me about it is they describe that phenomenon. They call it exoneration, which is an interesting word. Um, okay. But it's, it's that idea that the day will come where I will have done what I need to do and life should be easy moving forward. And, you know, that, that I think right. we all have this right, idea, right. like, I will, I will arrive and life yes. won't be a struggle and I won't get, you know, if I just do enough self-help, then I'll never be sad again. Or, right, right, and, right. And that is a, that is totally of, a fallacy. Uh, Buffy the Vampire Slayer, someday I'll be cookies. But now I'm just dough. <laughs> but I think we stay dough until they put us in the ground or burn us. Uh, I, I, th- I think we do. Our challenges change. Yeah. And, yeah. We're, and we're a process. So, And I think that was the, the, uh, the aha thing for me was that I'm never done. And every day is I, I can get better. You know, I can get better every day, but. I can't wish for a life without problems because that's just death. That's being dead. You know, that's, it's a, it's a, it's a fallacy. It's, you know, it's an illusion that we're chasing at. It is. And I think that recognizing that and um, coming to terms with it makes that life, I think always will take effort, but it doesn't always take struggle. And I think the struggle comes from resisting the fact that these things happen. I mean, there's that, there's that, line of way of thinking that, you know, it's, it's our resistance to what's happening that causes the pain so, so true. 95% so of the time. Yes. And, and so people resist this idea that life wow. will take effort. Um, they, and we want it to be different. And, uh, it's life is a lot easier when we just sort of accept that this is part of it. And I think the other thing for me was to realize that like, I just always thought if I had a life where I didn't really have to do anything. I could do whatever I wanted, whenever I wanted, um, and it's then awful. I would be happy. And it's oh, it's t- it's an awful. It's the yeah. worst. I, I'm a tr- I'm a wreck. <laughs> yeah, you know when that happens. Yeah, because that's just beer and TV. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> and that's awful, you know. Um, right. So okay, I wanted to say because the, in that little area, um, I re- I remembered your your show about Dr. John Sorno and his uh-huh. book, right? And and I have eczema and it got really bad, okay? So I have to read that book because it's going to come back. I have that personality of uh of, you know, basically I got addicted to itching is essentially uh-huh. what I've come up with, right? And it got to the point where this last year, um like around Christmas time, I noticed that my ankles were swelling and I had itched myself into this nasty little infection. Uh, Mm. Sorry, that's way too gross. (laughs) I might edit this out. (laughs) But anyway, um, I'm being vulnerable, right? That's what we do here. So, yeah. So then when I I got chastised by the doctor, right? Like she actually like treated me like I was like eight because I had one right. appointment, I got treatment, I got the stuff, and I think I might have scratched once in that whatever number of days, right? 
And and that scratch was enough for her to look at me going, what did you do? Did you scratch? Are you a child? <laughs> you know? And she just <laughs> laid into me and I'm like, whoa, she's right. You know? And I was like, I was giving, I, I was giving myself permission to scratch once a day. And the pain <laughs> was so intense, I got hooked on it. So I really, really have to read that that uh, that book. Uh, I'm not sure which one it was. I'm not sure if I need to read the one about back pain. But he has several books. I'm going to check one out. But you, that show with you and uh, the guy making the movie, I can't remember his name, Michael Galinsky or something like that? Yep. Yeah. Yep. He That was a healing moment just listening to your podcast. <laughs> <laughs> well, I got a you. little over that, 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 uh, that eczema scratchy addiction. Ugh life this brain matt yeah <laughs> anyway yep. let's move on to your next vroom veer period so this was the vroom was when uh you had a job and then the veer is a layoff so let's get into that period yeah this was you know when i got sober i was 25 essentially by the time i got out of treatment and all that and had never done anything except work in a restaurant and um you know commit various uh, illegal acts. And so I was like, I got to have a career. I never went to college. And so I got a job. Um, finally, you know, I had a couple of jobs. But I finally got a job I wanted with a um, company called CompuServe. They were one of the early, early I online pioneers. Yep. Yeah. And uh, I got a job in the customer service department and I just worked myself crazy and I got promoted out of that. And I finally had like a really cool, um, I mean, for me, it was just unbelievable the type of job I had and my uh so what were you doing were you like a, a chat room host or something <laughs> no at the, well I started in customer service no I was oh, okay. I moved right. into I'd moved into corporate um training so I oh, was training that's, that sounds like a blast. yeah yeah oh I loved it um and it was it was a great job and my uh my son's mother was um two months pregnant 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 with my son Jordan <laughs> And uh, AOL bought CompuServe and laid a bunch of us off. And oh, I remember wow. that moment being, um, I was terrified then, I think. And, uh, you know, I think the veer for me was, well, obviously I was forced into a veer to a certain degree. Right. But, but then what I was able to do was take some of that severance money and some different things and I invested in some training um, to further what I had already started learning to do. And uh, that sort of launched me, by the time I got through all that and did a couple of things, it launched me into the world of internet startups, which was really my career for the next, you know, 10, 10 or 15 years. And, and to some degree forms part of what I, you know, still do today. And okay. so that was, that was a pretty dramatic um, veer. But I think the, 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 the lesson there for me, because I've had situations like that multiple times since where... Um, employment has ended somewhat abruptly or unexpectedly for me. And uh, I almost at this point have learned to welcome it as a, as something for me that has always led to something better. Right. It's a, it's a reset switch in a happy way. Almost. Yeah. It, it doesn't feel it at the time. Now yeah. the, the most recent time it happened, I think was, it's been a while. It's been at least, you know, probably six years and uh, you know, 
my 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 wife was completely freaked out by it, and I was just like, "Ah, don't worry, this will be fine." And so finally, after having gone through it a, a few times, I I was at a point where I realized like um, that that there's that old cliche like you know when one door closes, another one opens. Um, well, they're a cliche which, for for you know for a reason. <laughs> there's that, truth that's in them. That's exactly right. Yeah. What a lot of people don't mention about that cliche, though, is that there's a, sometimes that second door doesn't open right away, and you're uh, kind of stuck in a dark hallway for a while. <laughs> good, good visualization. I thought you were going to say maybe you ram into it and you have to pound on it for a while. <laughs> but lost no. in a dark hallway is not cool either. Yep, and I think it's just having that, being able to have the faith that you, you know, that door will open. Sure. Oh, yeah. So what happened in the dark hallway for you? Um, I think I learned, I think what happened in the dark hallway was that I learned to just keep moving. Yes. Good, I learned, good lesson. I learned that, and it's a lesson that I talk about on the show all the time, and it was probably the key lesson in recovery, which was, you know, you act your way into right thinking often. You can't, you can't very, it's very hard sometimes to think your way into right action. Um, it's very hard mm. sometimes. Uh, emotions seem to be, to me, they're, they're the one thing that we can't directly affect. You can't, at least I've never been right. able to, and I don't know anyone who can, who can go in and just change an emotion. You can change your thoughts and you can change your behavior. Right. And those can act as levers that change your emotions. Right. But You can um, influence emotion. You That's can right. Process emotion. Yeah, um, you can learn to process, uh, you know, what we quote unquote call a negative emotion, more quickly, more positively, quicker. Um, but you can't. You can't directly. It's not like a switch. <laughs> We're not machines, right? Uh, we can right. do stuff and we can think things, uh, right? So behavior, thoughts, uh, actions. Yes, we can yep. direct control. Uh, influence on emotion. I agree with that 100%. And I think what I learned in that dark hallway or other dark hallways uh, periods in my life is to just keep going, is to just, yep, you know, even if you just are, even in my case, it's oftentimes the, the, the thought that might be going through my head is this is pointless or this is never going to work or, but it's just one foot in front of the other. What, what do, what seems like the next right thing to do and then do it? Yeah. You know, and, uh, I've talked about this before too, um, that a bad decision in the wrong direction is better than a non-decision because at least, you know, where you were before, uh, you've moved off of it. <laughs> and maybe you took a wrong turn, but at least you moved, you know? Um, so I guess that, that like any old movement, any old action um, is better than indecision. Does that make sense? It does. I think that's yeah. very often true. I mean, I think that there's a difference between indecision and taking time to think through a decision. Oh, totally. Um, Yes. You know, so like it, it, I don't think that means you always like just jump no matter what. But right. in general, I agree a hundred percent that, that some movement, um, you know, talking about depression, I always say depression hates a moving target. Just do anything besides sit there. Right. 
right. or lay there. And that's really, really hard if you have depression you know, or if you've wrestled with it. You know how hard that can be. When I was but, a kid, yeah. But just moving is can be so helpful. Change. You said it earlier, pattern interrupt, right? When you went yes. for your walk. Right, right. Just change the scenery, do anything. And I think that's kind of the way life is sometimes is you do just have to throw a lot of things against the wall and see what sticks. Yeah. That made me, and now we could talk a little bit about depression. So are you still, do you still consider yourself a, a depressed person and are you still like taking medication or is that part sort of like managed now? Well, it's man. Well, I do take medication. Okay. Um, and it is mostly managed. Right. Um, but I think it's still there. I think, but it's not there in the way that it used to be. It's yeah. not there in the way that I feel like it has much of an impact on, on my outer life. So I've gotten, you know, I think in the past there were times that it would really affect my outer life. I would mm -hmm. not, would not want to go to work or if I went to work, I didn't do anything or I wouldn't engage with people or I, and so I think it's managed to the point that, or managed to the point and I've learned to kind of keep walking. Um, but the periods come, they're not, the, they're not nearly as deep as they used to be. They are, um, the, like the it's normal, a, a little bit more on the normal range of something that, you know, you've been, you've had like lower lows and comparatively they're not as bad. That, yeah, that's right. And right. I think, but it feels to me like a different thing. It's very different to me than being sad or mm. being upset about something. When I, I notice it, what I notice mm. when, I, when I'm slipping into depression is when I can't find anything that really interests me. Because normally mm. it's like I, I've got three books I want to read tonight. I'd love to listen to this podcast. There's three new records out that I want to listen to and I want to practice guitar. And I'm like, I don't know what to do. I, you know, <laughs> there's so yeah, many things I want to do. Things. Right, right. But when depression starts to come on, none of that sounds appealing to me. I'm just like, yeah, whatever. Um, mm. That's so, and that's a very different. And I your, can't. Your curiosity is grayed out, blacked out. Yeah, and I, I think the technical term is called anhedonia. It's the inability to uh, experience pleasure in things that normally give you pleasure. And so okay. that that's what that's what mine is like. So it's a lot. It's much more minor than it used to be. But I would say yes, I still. I still have it and I deal with it. I went through a bout of depression while I was still in the Air Force back in uh, Hawaii. And I was really young. So like somewhere in the ages of uh, 21, 22, somewhere around there. And what I remember about being, and I don't, I don't know if this is, I never got diagnosed because I had a security clearance. So I never wanted to admit to anyone that I was depressed. But... I right. was, and then I found out later that I was, and and there was a, a series of you know events that helped me get out of it. Um, but there was there was a couple of uh, half-hearted suicide attempts in there, yeah. um, and and I and I they were always sort of like measured approaches where if I wasn't dead, I had to be able to get up and go to work. <laughs> yeah. So, right. So, oh my God, those are some really bad days. But what I remember about being depressed was like when I was alone, I would just cry and think life was stupid. Mm -hmm. Does that sound familiar? Um, Cause that sounds like different than yours. 
I, well, it's, I mean, I've had moments like that, but, but that is different than what my normal depression is. If I'm, if I'm, uh, if I'm, well, the life is stupid part. Yes. Because it's, that's what I get. I get that. Like, why, why bother? None of this really matters or means anything. Right. Yes. You need, you need, there, this, it's a bigger discussion, but later on in life, I came up with, um, what I like to call uh, uh, placeholder answers to big questions <laughs> that are ultimately unknowable objectively that I like to fill in with positive choices. <laughs> that life that, is absurd and it's okay. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's a really interesting idea and, and a right. really probably solid uh, approach for sure. if, you're, if you're the sort of person that can't um, seem to come to answers on those things. Right. Um, some people seem to believe that they know the answer or there's, there's a, there, that it, it all makes sense to them in some way and more power to them, but that's never been my approach. And I think you're right. If you can take, if you don't know, why not, why not put in something that is at least serves you better? Right. And these things, uh, I went through, you know, like a, a big chunk of life doing, you know, spiritual seeking, Right. Where I was just ravenously reading anything spiritual. Right. Right. And and so and then I I would be journaling and writing and blogging and and then and then I just like said, well, I'm done with that now. (laughs) And then I I finished it all out, you know, and done means like you can only I, I I don't think I can go down those roads anymore and come up with new answers. Right. There's certain things about existence as a human on earth that are unknowable to me. That's that was my yep. decision. And they're paradoxical and whatever you to me it's it's a it's beneficial and empowering to answer them with my chosen answers because I know that my my wholeness, my whole brain is going to operate as if that it were true. Right. Whether or not it's a it's empowering or disempowering. So I've just filled them in with things that I like. <laughs> Does that make sense? <laughs> yeah. Because you that... can't know them anyway, so they might as well make them what you want them to be. That's, that was basically, yep. yeah. All right. So what happened? Um, you got laid off. So then you said something about like falling back into addiction mm-hmm. again. Yep. So, I did. So talk about that and how did that, what was the lead up to that? And then how did you climb back out of that hole? Well, it's, I'm trying to decide whether to do the shorter or the longer version. Um, Whichever has more value to you. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, I think the, the, the medium version is uh, I was in recovery. I was married. I had a kid. I had a job. And I was very committed to helping other, um, other recovering alcoholics and addicts. And that was a big part of my life. And I had, talking about spirituality, I had some spiritual belief that I was trying really hard to believe um, because uh, uh, 12-step recovery is very much about a higher power concept. Right, right, right. And, and so I was forcing myself into believing this thing. And then uh, my wife left uh, me, or I should say I left, but she was the one who initiated it. And, um, my world kind of fell apart. My son was two and a half. Um, 
and I was really suffering. And what happened in that moment is I realized I did not have a spiritual approach to life that made any sense. Um, I didn't have something that I could lean on in times of trouble. And so I didn't go back to drinking after that. Um, I stayed sober again for a while. But what started happening is I started drifting away from recovery. Okay. I started drifting away from spiritual concepts. You know, things like there's a, there's more to life than, you know, making myself happy. And I got very into my own happiness. What makes me happy? What feels good? And mm-hmm. so I wasn't drinking or doing drugs, but I was back in that mindset. You kind of got, uh, you took a, a trip on the, uh, what do they call it? The uh, hedonistic treadmill. <laughs> yeah. Yep. <laughs> yeah. You know, that was one of my methods too. <laughs> you know, these are all addictions. Let's just indulge them until they go away. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, I right. did that. My name's Jeff, and I'm an idiot. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, it's fun yep. while it lasts, right? Yeah, I mean, it, it, I had, I did have some periods of a lot of fun, um, right. but I just drifted further and further away, and then I hit a point where um, the thought just came in my head, like, I don't think I'm alcoholic because, you know, I was, I was so young then. You know, this is the what was going on in my head at the time. I was so young then. And uh, look at my life now. I make good decisions. You know, I've been very successful in a career. I'm raising a son. You know, I go, I make a decision to go to the gym. I figured some shit out here. Yes. Ex- exactly. I've been through a lot of therapy. I, I deserve I'm, this. Yeah. I just thought I could handle it. I thought that okay. for me, it was, I thought I would, I, I was okay making. okay enough to deal with this. Yeah, I was making good decisions in most areas of my life, and I thought, you know what, I can make a good decision about this. And uh, and it started off okay for a little while. I went back to drinking. The world didn't end the next day. Um, but slowly over a period of time, over several years, it got worse and it got worse. And nothing, it never got anywhere near on the outside what had happened to me before. You know, I wasn't doing heroin. I wasn't living in the back of a van. Matter, matter of fact, I was making more money than I ever had. I had better jobs than I'd ever had. Mm. Um, so you started, you went down the road of being a functional alcoholic, basically. Yeah, I mean, it, yes, you could still, I was. You could still pull it together and go to work and. Just, yeah, barely. I understand. Um, and I had people <laughs> around me who were way worse than me that I could look at and go like, now those guys, mm, right. You now know, those guys I, are alcoholics. I, Me, I you know, don't have a problem. I, I, I go to work every day. Now, never mind that I might've gotten up and taken three volume and smoked a joint to get over the hangover <laughs> to go to work. Right. <laughs> but I was there. Right. Um, and, but a certain point just came where, um, you know, the people, there were people around me who were kind of like, I don't like this. I don't like this part of you anymore. You've got a problem and uh, whatever. And, uh, but my son has been the one thing in my life that I've always, um, it's just the most important thing to me. And, and I, I made some bad decisions with him while I was, while I was drinking. I look back on some of them and I go, well, maybe, you know, I, I shouldn't have done some of those things, but by and large, I don't think my parenting, um, suffered a great deal. Um, but there was one night where I was on like a three day binge. I was just drinking like crazy. And I went out with a friend of mine and I passed out and, um, I didn't go home. And now my wife, my second wife was there with 
my son. And so it was fine. She got him up and got to school. But that was the, but that was normally my job. And that was the first time that I had just blown it like that with something like that. That had never happened. He was always, you know, to school on time. I was always at his sporting events. We always did all that stuff. He could count on you. He could count on me. And in that moment, I realized, oh my God, he can't. And so I think a combination of coming off a really bad um, binge, being sick, you know, physically just, you know, my... Hangover from hell, yeah. My wife at the time just harping at me and my shock at what had happened, I went back to AA. Um, And I went back very begrudgingly. And I stayed sober for about six really miserable months. Like, it just never went away. All I wanted to do was drink the whole time. And that had not been my experience the first time. Right. Um, so something that it, changed. It, yeah, it just would not go away. And I finally broke down and drank two nights in a row. One night was at my, uh, my wife's um, parents' house. And uh, I drank beer in the bathroom until I nearly passed out. And the next day was at my house back here. And I, I went from sober to uh, throwing up and passed out in about 15 to 20 minutes. It was just, I just could not pour the whiskey down my throat fast enough. And when I came out of that, I, I went, I think this is played out. You know, up, I had gone, I had gone before, you know, the last six months really for my wife, for my son. And those things are all important, but I still felt like I was giving something up that still had a lot of, had value to me. And I think after those couple days, I kind of gave up. Um, Mm -hmm. and I went back and, uh, it still was hard. I never got, I don't understand what it is, but people who have had a a substantial period of sobriety and go out seem to have an incredibly hard time getting back. A lot of them never do. Um, Mm -hmm. but that was, that was a little over eight years ago and I've been sober since. So congratulations. um, Way to go. Yeah, it was, um, it was harder though because it was an it was very much more of an intellectual exercise. The first time my life was just shredded. And this time I had to be I had to do a little bit more of do I really have to ride this elevator to the bottom before I get off of it? Do I you know, that's the old saying, yeah, you can't right. you don't quit till you hit bottom. I mean, can I do I really have to hit that kind of bottom? Do I have to wait till I'm in a car wreck with my son because I've been drinking? Do I have to and I just I just the answer, was like, no. whatever answer you say is true. <laughs> right. So if you say and no, I, then you don't have to. But if you say right. yes, then you do. Right. And I just was like, I'm not going to do that. I, 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 I'm smarter than that. But it made it, it made it hard. I think it's hard in the way that quitting smoking is really hard because the consequences feel remote. You know, when I was, when I got sober the first time, I had nowhere to live. I had, you know, like I said, about 35 years of jail time pending. The, the consequences were not remote. They were, you know, firmly on top of me. And right. this time, again, the thing with my son, but it would be very easy to go, well, you know, I knew my wife was there. It was fine. Um, those consequences were not the same. I wasn't yeah. getting DUIs. I wasn't, right, right. but I just, so it made it you harder. You could it was, manage. Yeah. You know, you, you're right. And, uh, which makes it was, more difficult. But I was no more um, out of control the second time than I was the first time. The truth was at both points, I was at a point where, you know, drinking and drugs were the most important thing in the world. They were the thing that I would mm-hmm. prioritize over mm-hmm. everything else. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so even though from the outside it looked very like, oh, these are very different things, they weren't at, at, at the core. Right. The core was, 
you know, that was the most important thing to me. So that was a, you know, that was the second sort of, I've, I've roomed my way back into drinking and, and, and spent several years doing it, convincing, trying to convince myself it was fine. Um, you know, in that mindful mindlessness and then occasionally having moments of like, well, I don't know, which I would shove back down into mindlessness as quick as I could. Yeah. And, uh, and then, you know, the next big veer was to, was to get sober again. Right. Right. Wow. But you know, this, have you ever, this is kind of sounds like a tangent, but, um, when we talk about these things, the, the, uh, the thing that I keep thinking about was, I don't know how I found it, but somebody on Facebook linked me to this website called your brain on porn. And it's all about how modern internet porn really, really messes with your brain hormones and chemicals and dopamine mostly. Uh, and it's like this, you know, there's no actual research because who's going to pay for that, but there's this one guy and I think he's like a school teacher and he did a Ted talk and he does this web page and it's all about, the really, really bad negative effects of internet porn. So after reading all of that, I just decided to go cold turkey for 30 days. Like Tim Ferriss did this thing called Nob Nom, no booze, no masturbation for 30 days. Uh-huh. So I just finished one of those. Um, and so this whole the whole story on that is like, when when you're doing when you're using the internet porn every time you look at a new face on the screen your uh you get this dopamine spike and essentially your brain starts down regulating to uh, um that an over overdose of dopamine is mm-hmm. I'm oversimplifying just to to keep it quick here um so that gives like the world like a sort of gray tone um outside of that hit that fix right yep and they're constantly comparing it to like the worst like cocaine and heroin sorts of addictions and 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 it has all of these other sorts of telltale signs of addictive behavior of you're constantly seeking a new elevation because of the body is trying to downregulate, so you're having to ramp up to get your high it's it's a crazy cycle and uh when i got off of when i did my my 30-day trial that's what i was panicked about because for whatever reason on monday i started looking at porn again and i was like no no stop it stop it don't do it (laughs) (laughs) oh man it's crazy it's uh brain is funny man yeah i'm I'm glad my, my it seems like my life at some point after my suicide, uh, some like guardian angel put the uh, gutter bumpers up on my life. I've never gotten really super low again, and I'm very thankful for that. I don't know how, I, you know. Thank God. <laughs> yep. Yep. <laughs> okay, so let's move on to your solar business. We're getting on an hour here now. We're getting close. Yeah. So we might wrap up on this story and then. Uh, uh, maybe we'll save the next portion of your life for the next show. All right. All right, cool. So you did a solar business. So tell us how you got there. Well, I, um, I, I sobered up uh, the second time and um, I think I got, I think I got bored. Um, you know, I was working, but I always seemed to need to have 
something going on. It's just in my nature. Um, and so a new challenge, I challenge a growth thing. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I think that's just when I'm happiest. So I, I don't know why I was at the library one day. I, I love the library. I think they're like the greatest, uh, you know, I just love them. And so I was at a library and I saw a book on clean technology and I don't know why I picked it up, but I did. And I started reading it and I just got hooked and I was reading it. And then I all of a sudden went, well, I think I'm going to start a solar energy company, which, uh, was crazy on a couple fronts. I mean, one is I don't know anything about it. Um, <laughs> Probably a good thing. If you had, you went to try it. And, uh, and secondly, I live in Ohio, um, which is, you know, not a very sunny place. Um, and ah, has right, very, right. has very cheap electricity, which turns out to be the more important, um, right thing. Right. Yes. But that being said, um, we still had, you know, I, the company, the company got going and we had a couple, you know, million dollar years in revenue. And, um, that's pretty you good. Know, I, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, we, you know, I, I threw myself into it, um, you know, pretty wholeheartedly. Now I wasn't able to quit all the consulting work I was doing cause I had to have money coming in. So I just worked like crazy. And, um, but I was, I, you know, I, I, I loved it, but the point finally came where it was just clear to me that, I didn't see a path forward for it here where we were. The state of Ohio started rolling back a lot of the policies that they had put in place that made me think it might be a good idea. Um, and we just had, we just had a lot of what I would just call bad timing. We were, we were consistently about six months late on everything. We would get to a point, there was one point we had about $12 million in signed contracts and uh, the state of Ohio decided that it was going to stop a rebate program and all our investors pulled out. And we had a couple of different events like that. And, uh, kind of after about the third one of those, I just, I finally looked at it and I went, I'm not enjoying it anymore. I just am not like, I'm trying to push this forward, but I, I'm, I'm, I'm worn out. I'm not, it's not fun anymore. And so, um, you know, I just kind of gradually walked away from, that company. Um, I had a partner who was running it for a while, but right now it's pretty much dormant. There's, there's not much happening. You know, there's a, there's a bunch of solar systems around the state of Ohio that I can drive by and feel good that we got put up. But, um, it, it kind of, I just, I lost the, I lost the desire to do it at a certain point. Wow. Wow. Yeah. You know, that's whenever you're dealing with the, the whims of the government, any government, <laughs> you know, that it's, it's a, it's a precarious business model, right? Oh yeah. That's a lesson. That's a lesson I learned. I knew it going in. I, you know, if you'd asked me, what are the risks to the business? I would have said, well, dependence on government. Right. Know. Yes. But, but I don't think I had any idea how quickly those things can change and how dramatically and, you know, part of my job, a lot of my job became going down to the Senate and the, you know, the, the Ohio State House and going to Washington and, you know, trying to, t to testify and build a case for a lot of these things. And that just, it, for the first couple of times I did it, I was like, oh, this is really cool. And then, but it after a like little while, you know, Mr. Smith goes to Washington. Right. But <laughs> after a while I went, I don't like it here. I don't, right. I don't like this, um, you know, it started why to should become, I be, why should I be, you know, chasing this, this windmill sort of feel? Yeah, that and the, um, you know, it just became real clear that, you know, if we, if we have a fun, you know, if we throw a fundraiser for ex Senator, then we can get 15 minutes time alone with him to make our case. But if we don't, you know, 
we'll mm-hmm. get his aid. We'll get his aid one day when they have time. I mean, it became clear to me how a lot of it really did work. And that's sure. I'm not trying to be overly cynical, but that was just the reality yeah. of right. of of what we were facing. And I just I just started to not not like it. And that was kind of the the end. You know, where I got with it all was I just am not. This isn't fun anymore. And um, if it's not if a hell, yeah, right. Well, yeah, or or if you're gonna or if you're gonna you know it's just the the ups and downs and the effort and the stress and all the things that come with running your own business um, are reward are are offset by passion and love and a lot of that stuff. But if that passion and love goes away, you've got yourself a pretty dark place to be yeah. because. Honestly, a regular job is far better than than a, a, a your own company that you don't like, in my opinion. Oh, totally. I mean, that's that's worse having a business yep. that you don't want anymore. <laughs> yeah, yep. That's worse because you've got all the headaches and the fear and and everything that's bad about entrepreneurship, and you don't have all the bennies, all the good stuff. You know. Yep. So. Yep. Right. Ouch. Nothing wrong with walking away from that. Would have been nice to sell out and have a nice payday, but you know, Cinderella it, doesn't always win. <laughs> that, that's right. Yeah. That's right. And I, I just had to, you know, that was one, you know, that was another, um, you know, I vroomed pretty hard on that for, right, you right. know, yeah, I and, can tell. and, and, uh, you know, there was a period of time where I just kept trying to sort of ignore the reality that was around the me. The beer was there in front of you. You, you knew that you had to separate yep. yourself from that. Right. Yep. And it took me a while to get to the place where I could do it. It took me a while to, you know, it, it's sort of like I, you know, when I was talking about re- recovery from alcoholism addiction, these moments come up where you're like, yeah, I think this is probably a bad idea. And then you just shove it back down and go on. And, yeah. you know, yeah. it just, it, so that it's back to that idea of the epiphany. Usually it's been brewing for a little while, um, yes. you know, yeah. and so it was the same thing there. It had been brewing for a while and I finally had to get to a place and, uh, and I had to be okay with walking away from, you know, it was, you know, there's certainly an ego thing to it. We were, you know, we were, a, like I said, a million dollar company. I was testifying in, at the Senate. I was in newspapers. We were in a hot new field. And so ego wise, I had to kind of walk away from that and just go, well, I'm not that anymore. And um, Right. You kind of start identifying yourself with the company and the effort and the whole thing. Yeah. That's part of grooming. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yes. Yep. And so I was definitely there. And so I had to, that, that was, uh, you know, and, and you, something you put that much time into is kind of your baby to it, to a yeah. large degree, even if you don't want to raise it anymore. Um, oh, yeah. It's devastating. You, know, you still don't, it's you like don't getting jumped. Kill. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. But I think it happened gradually. And I was in a place where I think for whatever reason I had my, I had my head on well enough to be able to go, this just isn't, isn't right anymore. Um, you know, did we fail? Yeah, we, you know, we did. Um, and, and what, you know, what can I learn from that? And there's certainly a lot of lessons I got out of that, that, uh, you know, I, I try and apply to things I do today. That's great. That's great. This has been, uh, an amazing show for me. I've had a blast. Thank you so much for, uh, for taking the time, uh, to chat with me and being open and vulnerable. Wow. This has been like my favorite show. (laughs) (laughs) Well, right, right back at you. You've been, uh, you've been very open too. It's been a, it's been a fun conversation for sure. So let's, uh, I'm going to put a, a a reminder to call you in six months to a year because, uh, I want to get more, 
of the one you feed, and I want to get more Eric Zimmer, and maybe we'll get Chris to tag along someday. That would be awesome. Uh, that, would, <laughs> that would be awesome. Maybe a little guitar action. That would be cool. Yeah. <laughs> We'll uh, we'll serenade you. Every answer we give, we'll do in song. There you go. I'm down. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much, Eric. Thank you. All right. Have a good one. Okay. Take care. Bye. Thanks for taking the time to ride along with us on another episode of Vroom Vroom Veer. For podcast info and show notes, be sure to head over to vvveer.com. That's triple V-double-E-R.com. Man, that's fun to say. And we'll catch up with you next time here on Vroom Vroom Veer. Vroom Vroom Veer.